Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you thrive on camera and in life by tapping into your superpowers and making an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase managing stress, which comes up a lot in the camera ready universe. Stress is the body's response to physical, mental, or emotional pressure and causes chemical changes in the body that can raise your heart rate, affect your breathing and speech, cause sudden profuse sweating, make you feel fuzzy and lose confidence, and impact your performance. Here to discuss how to manage stress is Sarah Vallelli, the lead instructor, coach, and founder of TSD Mindfulness Meditation Center. Sarah has been teaching mindfulness and meditation for over 20 years in Los Angeles, Atlanta, Asheville, North Carolina, and of course, now online. Sarah has written four books, including Sensational Meditation for Children and Tame, Soothe, Dwell, and is the host of the podcast, The Aware Mind. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Barbara. So great to be here. Mm, I'm delighted. So I just want to begin by talking about you are a mindfulness coach. And so I'd like you to remind us the connection between mindfulness and managing stress. Yeah. So mindfulness helps us better understand, identify what it is that's going on within our being that's worsening our stress. Uh, So what most people are familiar with is our own uh, monkey mind, right? Our our chatter, our negative self-talk, things of that nature. And so mindfulness is just a wonderful way to become aware that that's even happening. And then there's other techniques for stepping away from that and and limiting that. But mindfulness can also be used to identify fight or flight triggers. And uh, it can also be used to heal through past trauma, which are two other parts of our system, our nervous system, our fight or flight triggers and our past trauma, two other aspects of our being that really can worsen our stress. I want to actually come back to the trauma component, because I think that is such an important part of this conversation that is either not acknowledged or many people are not quite aware that that may be part of their story and why they're experiencing this. And in my case, in the media space, it's often before giving a speech, a presentation, going on television, going into an audition, going into a job interview, any of those things. So first of all, I just want to confirm, did I get the definition of stress? Okay. Or would you like to add anything to that in the stress response? Uh, yeah, no, no, that's, that's great. And then there's also on top of that, there are neurological things going on that mindfulness helps to reduce stress. Just real quickly, one thing that a lot of people don't know about is when you practice mindfulness, a sitting practice, we enter these, what are called microstates more often and for longer periods of time. And microstates are certain arrangements of the brain. They're activated. We have about four different arrangements. And normally what happens, especially when we're stressed is we're just boinking around. We're jumping around in our brain to all these different states. But when we practice mindfulness, we actually are in a state for a little bit longer and it's only actually for milliseconds longer, but those milliseconds make a huge difference in our stress level. So I think you just said, if we practice this regularly, we'll get better at it. Yeah. Research shows that if you practice mindfulness for 20 minutes a day for six months, the actual structures in your brain, the physical structures in your brain start to change. 
we grow oh. thicker the cerebellum starts getting thicker which helps us process emotions better and so forth yeah so it's it it's it works <laughs> okay let's go right there what what does that look like what what's happening during my 20 minutes how do i get started <laughs> oh well i my philosophy is to really find out what is going on with each particular person and then then create a meditation that's perfect for them. Mm -hmm. But just as a general rule, uh, mindfulness is paying attention to the physical environment primarily. So that would be the sounds in your environment, the physical sensations in your body. That's part of your physical experience, uh, or with your eyes open, um, looking at something physical or paying attention to your breath. The breath is a combination of sound and physical sensations. So that's the first, you know, one-on-one mindfulness is learning how to take a break and, uh, notice those things. But the first thing that comes up for people is, well, I'm so distracted. I keep going in my head about the list of all the different things that I need to do, or I'm beating myself up because I don't feel like I'm doing my meditation correctly and things like that. And so then the next level of practice is uh, being able to notice that those thoughts are happening, but not getting really engaged with them. And one of the traditional ways that we as mindfulness practitioners disengage from our thoughts is we name them. And it's the idea is, is that if we are naming our thought, for example, we're naming it just thinking, or we're naming it worry, or we're naming it rumination. When we're naming our thought, we're disengaged to it to some degree, because you can't be totally entwined in your thought and name it at the same time. So, so those are some good tips for starting off. That's really helpful because I am definitely one of those people years ago who was super distracted and really felt that there was only one right way to meditate and I wasn't doing it. So it was hugely liberating one when I had a student who was a practitioner who gave me the big old permission slip that I could meditate in the shower because that was the only place when I had young children that I had any privacy. Yeah. That was like my, <laughs> yeah. my, you know, 15 minutes a day. And it's mm -hmm. to this day, it's, it's where I'm enormously creative right? Because I've just trained myself to do a lot of thinking there. Mm -hmm. And then also Dan Harris, I thought wrote beautifully about that in 10% Happier. Oh, I love that book. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was such a great example of the power of a walking mindful meditation. Mm -hmm. And just to start going, identifying what you're seeing, hearing and feeling and the activity of that. And I think for many people, when we're new to that, that was just a giant permission slip and an, oh, wow, it doesn't mean I have to sit cross-legged on the floor and there's only one right, right way and I'm not doing it. So th those are extremely helpful. Explain to me though, too, the, the personalization part of it. Like, is there a rule of thumb? Like if you're, you know, if your experience, your background is this, this type of practice or meditation is right for you. I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So when I work with co in coaching, coaching clients, it will be a completely different experience than if you were to sign up with a meditation center and have a meditation teacher and have them teach a sitting practice. Uh, my format model is much different. So it mm. starts out with me using assessments to identify exactly what it is in your system that is worsening your stress. Is it more about your own thinking? Is it more about your nervous system? Uh, we all go into fight or flight, but some of us have trouble moving ourselves out of fight or flight. So identifying if that's an issue, identifying past trauma, things like that. And then based on that information, then I teach certain short exercises are usually only about five minutes exercises that 
pertain exactly to that person's, uh, I call them your unique stress type. And so, yeah, I, I have about a hundred different tools and exercises, and I only use a few with each client. And uh, so I need to know which ones are going to be the ones that are going to have the biggest impact in the least and the shortest amount of time. And the philosophy is, is that if you use the correct exercise, that five minute exercise at the right point during the day, because that's the other part of this, I'm teaching my clients how to identify when that those things are coming up for them during the day. And then they identify that. And then they take a moment, take a breath and do the five minute exercises. Their reality, their experience and stress just completely starts shifting. It's really powerful. That's why I was so happy to have this conversation with you because it comes up a lot where I have clients who come in often who are extremely attached to their stress around this and their, and their anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to move people out of that. Like I, that it's an identifier and it's strangely comforting because they know what it is. So I love the customization aspect of this and the science behind it to say, no, you are not doomed <laughs> to this, no matter you know what. And, and, and quite often the more successful someone is, the more fear is attached to this and imposter syndrome. So it becomes a quite a serious issue. So going back to mindfulness for one moment, because I was reading about, you know, your, the book, I hope I get the title right again, was the soothe, which wait, wait, let me get it right. Uh, Tame, soothe, dwell. And I love the fact that you use an episode from Seinfeld as a mindfulness exercise. So could you walk us through that? Yeah. So just to let the listeners know a little background, I got into this field 21 years ago by teaching meditation to children. And then I started training teachers, parents, and therapists how to teach um, meditation to children. So that's my background. So some of the things that I do are a little bit campy and goofy. And, uh, and so one thing that I do to teach people what mindfulness is, is I play a Seinfeld clip and it's really short. It's only about 40 seconds or something like that, but it's the one where Kramer gets back from playing golf and he's just like, I have no concentration. And he's yelling and there's like Sam coming out of his shirt and it's pretty hilarious. So I show my students, uh, cause I teach a class as well. I show my students the clip and I say, just watch it. And they watch it and they're real involved in the story. And, you know, we, we talk about it for a minute afterwards and I say, okay, I'm going to play the clip again, but this time when I play it, I don't want you to pay attention to the story. I want you to pay attention to the pitches of the voice, uh, to the volumes of the people's voices. I want you to pay attention to the colors in the set. I want you to pay attention to the shapes of the objects in the set. And then I play the clip again and then that's what they do. And afterwards I tell them that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is pulling yourself out of the story, whatever it is, and moving yourself into what I call the abstraction of it. And, uh, and that's, that's mindfulness in a nutshell. And the reason that that practice is so important is I like, like to always go back to the neurology. It changes the way our brain is operating. And when we change the way our brain is operating, then we, we heal, we're calmer, we're happier. Uh, one of the reasons is, is we get pulled out of what's called the default mode network. When you're in autopilot, you're in using the arrangement in your brain. Uh, the network is called the default mode network. And when we're in that, that's when we ruminate. That's when we worry 
Uh, and so when you pull yourself out of that by paying attention to the sounds in the environment and the colors and the shapes, uh, you, you, you move out of that. Just to sort of gum up the works for a second. The one thing I am curious though, is in it, it's about replacement because for many of us, and I can even say this for myself, sometimes, you know, you get addicted to stress and anxiety, right? Like I realized I was getting, you know, an adrenaline boost from stress. Like I don't jump out of airplanes, but I was like, you know, charging ahead in a New York life. I realized, and I think that's the reason why some people are addicted to drama and different things is you actually, I don't know, are we getting dopamine hits from that? And so, and so it can be a strange sensation in the detachment because you're not getting, if you, if you haven't experienced a lot of calm, that is, you're like, I don't know, I don't know, that's, that's not as exciting. So I, I was just curious about it. Like, is it just part of process or are there techniques to help replace the, that, that feeling that, you know, I work in an industry that is so much about being juiced mm-hmm. and maybe just falsely creating stress because you stay pumped and you're going and you're going all night and you're getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. And how do yeah. Yeah, I mean, am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah. Everything you're saying is completely true. And sometimes I would, to some degree, put myself in that category. I'm I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie with my sports that I do. But um, I think, so there's a few things here. One is knowing your personality and knowing if that's something that, uh, that you do enjoy. But you have to be mindful of when you're overdoing it. So when is there a tipping point? When is it um, mm. that you're moving into this place of burnout? I work with so many clients who are almost at burnout or they're at burnout um, because they've gone, 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 gone. Uh, some of them, because of what you're talking about, about being a little bit of um, uh, addicted to the rush, but a, a lot of other clients uh, are in that situation because they are uh, trauma survivors and trauma survivors, including myself, will just keep working and keep um, building and, and uh, build these empires. Uh, and eventually you learn, you um, move into burnout. But the other way I would answer that question is just experiment and try a new feeling because if you meditate, if you are one of those people and you sit and meditate, you're going to get a new feeling that you're probably also going to really like, and is actually better for your body because, uh, when you are in fight or flight, uh, you it's, it's wear and tear on your cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be mindful of that, but you know, I would just say to, to do it and try it, give it a good six months dedication. And, and I would say that what will end up happening is you'll be like, wow, this is a really new, cool, cool feeling. <laughs> you know, I, I like this one. I also want to address, cause I think you brought up something great is that is the finding the balance between, um, you know, having enough for some people, the you know, a little bit of the anxiety that gets your energy up. And some people just love that and starting to understand, to be able to identify w- when am I at my peak and when have I moved into, cause that's, that comes up so much literally in the performance aspect where I'm totally still in control. And now I I'm, I guess I'm in go mode. I'm in performance mode versus mm-hmm. uh, now I've lost control and my emotions are running the show. Do you have any, just to clarify, do you have any like tips? Like, is that just like a trial and error to start to understand what's happening? Your just be mindful of that in your own body. Yeah. So usually what ends up happening when I have clients that are in that situation is, so they, they are 
really feeling good about all this go, go, go energy and everything that they're accomplishing. And then they have this like negative stuff that's going on in their life. And what they don't realize is that go, go, go energy is actually what's causing the negative things in their life. And so I have a tool. It takes about a whole hour session that we go through the whole thing. And by the end, they start to see how they're actually connected. And so when they become aware of that, like, oh, it's like a cause and effect, like this happens and this happens and this happens. And when they see that, how it's connected, then they're motivated to say, oh, okay, maybe I need to um, tone down this go, go, go energy a little bit. So this other part doesn't feel so uh, bad. Do you know, so many of us never make that connection, right? And there's the book, The Big Leap, which talks about, you know, our ceiling, or we put these, a false ceiling on our capacity for joy in our lives. And that was an eye opener to me to see that it's like, yay, I just got this promotion or I just closed this deal. And then I go home and I, you know, I pick a fight with my partner. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing we're saying that it's the, the and, and I think, again, I work in a field where many people might take that as normal behavior that it's like, yeah, of course my home life's a little, is a mess or my relationships are, are messy. Isn't everyone's? And you're mm-hmm. saying no, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And the amount of extra free time for self-care that people end up creating for themselves because of Ooh, doing the work. Extra yeah. free time. Wait, say yeah. that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just because you just kind of get into this spiral where you just like this, you have to do this, like, and this creates more work and that more work actually creates more work. And then when they start to unwind that unwinding is the word that my clients usually use. They feel like they're just unwinding from that. And then they start doing some other stuff that brings them a lot of joy. Oh, wait. So now we've just added something really wonderful here. We're managing stress and now we're actually increasing our productivity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I like that a lot. Uh I do want to focus now that uh, much of your work is on healing trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I want to spend, you know, some time recognizing that because your, your trauma, I thought this was very interesting in your materials is also includes work trauma and racial trauma. And that comes up is very present in for many of my clients and for many people listening to the podcast. So I wonder, because I don't think that gets acknowledged enough at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, a lot of us have had trauma in situations that aren't the typical norm of, you know, childhood trauma and the norm of, uh, the typical, um, neglect and, um, abuse and that sort. And, uh, on top of it, or instead they've had trauma at work, uh, they've been, um, treated unfairly, uh, it's, it does have an effect on you. And the racial trauma is, is a huge factor. I mean, that just is, goes right to the, the core and it just brings up all of these, um, terrible feelings about, uh, you know, safety and, and believing in your country and, and things like that. So, uh, it's, um, it's can be addressed with mindfulness and, uh, trauma, causes a shame cycle. So that's the big connection is we go into shame because we've had trauma and it's a psychological phenomenon and it's really awful. It, it makes us, it makes the, it's bad enough that we have the trauma, but then on top of it, we go into these shame cycles and feel inferior, feel excluded, uh, feel 
betrayed and, and, and then we start turning on ourselves. So there's a term called internalization. And so internalization means that something happens, uh, someone says something to us or something happens and we actually turn on ourselves and we start getting angry at ourselves. And so all these things that I've just mentioned can all be identified with mindfulness, with mindfulness mindset. doesn't mean you have to go and sit down and meditate for 30 minutes every day, but it means you have to learn how to have a mindful mindset and to be aware of this, the process of the getting triggered. Uh, We get triggered with a deep emotion such as hurt, pain, rejection, loss, betrayal. And then what happens is to protect ourselves from that, we start going into these thought cycles in our head about anger, resentment, self-blame, self-critical to essentially the reason that we do that on a subconscious level is to protect ourselves from the deep hurt of rejection and and pain. But uh, the problem is, is when we do that, we get stuck. So if there's anyone out there who's listening, who's feels like stuck, like I've had this trauma or I feel so stressed. I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. It's that could be what's happening. And so what the mindfulness does is you start identifying those cycles and then there's practices and tools for um, moving yourself out of that and feeling um, unstuck and more flowing. Wow. Because in the case of racial trauma, you know, again, with my clients, so many of those people that will often, often intersect with work. I mean, the racial trauma is on, let's say, a lifetime or a daily basis, but there's shows up a lot of work. So one of the things I want to ask is in a lot of situations, you can remove yourself from having to be in situations where you might be triggered, have to deal with that trauma again, but it's very hard in the case of race. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's so prevalent. It's so, uh, you know, the people who are traumatizing other people, I guess is the best way to say it. Don't even realize they're doing it. So it's just so, there's so much um, a, a lack of consciousness around it. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you escape it? But what you can do, what you can do is show up for yourself, love yourself and, and give yourself that compassion and create that time for self-care and, and really build yourself up from the inside out. How can bosses, you know, managers, leaders, in my case, like, you know, producers, network executives, et cetera, be more mindful ourselves of creating better, you know, workplaces and reducing racial trauma? Do you ever, have you ever, you know, done trainings in that way? Um, Yeah, I, what's the closest to that is I, I work with couples a lot. And um, so that would be more of my realm, but but in the same vein there, devaluing is a huge piece to this. So it's really becoming knowledgeable of how some of the things that you say can come across as devaluing, even though maybe consciously you think that you're not devaluing, that you're not thinking someone's a lesser of a person, but what you're saying comes across as um, that they're a lesser person. So some examples in a romantic relationship, for example, would be, um, I, uh, it's none of your business, uh, that can come across as devaluing because that can come across as I don't value you enough to share this with you, 
or a, that statement of whatever, just saying, oh, whatever, you know, that can come across as devaluing because that could be interpreted as um, I, I don't value you and I don't value what you're saying. What you're saying isn't, I don't consider it to be valuable. Uh, so there's just so many different ways that what we're saying can be devaluing. So as far as people who are in positions of um, authority or um, superior positions, I think you need to be take the responsibility of really being mindful of your speech and how what you can say could come off as devaluing. So that's one element. Um, I do work with people who own their own companies and are managers. And I think something that helps them is to also become aware of their own emotional process. And so I, one of the things I coach people to do is to, when they become mindful of their trigger, they're in anger, uh, they're in um, frustration, something like that, to actually step away from their computer. I'm like, I literally tell them Stand up, step away from your computer, go sit in another chair, just find a different location, take a walk outside something. And then I teach them the exercise to do um, to help them process through that emotion. Really what's happening is if you're triggered into anger, it, it's actually a trauma trigger. So you are actually, your heart is getting um, triggered from a past trauma. So I teach them how to move that into their heart and move into that trauma trigger and give them self-compassion and heal from it. There's a component of this too, which is about boundary setting, I think, once you're mm -hmm. mindful, right? So what are some things that someone could say in a situation, even if they're just listening and they realize, you know, they're listening to the podcast and realize, wow, I need some language around this. I don't know if you have anything. Mm -hmm. So if you're an employee and you are speaking to your boss or what, what do you mean? Yeah. So in that case, or even with a partner, if what you're hearing is devaluing some way of responding that is both empowering, but not going to get you fired, that mm -hmm. says, I feel devalued. You said mm -hmm. that, but I heard this. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It, it's easier when you can work with both together. But if I'm just working with one, uh, well, here's an example. I have a client right now. She's married and she had been struggling in her marriage because of um, feeling devalued and feeling unheard and, and so forth. And for her, she, we actually identified that she was going into fight or flight almost every time she was going to confront her husband when she was going to set the boundary, like, I don't want you to talk to me like that and whatever it was. And so for her, and this, this happens a lot, for her, we did some tools and exercises around fight or flight triggers working with her nervous system. And once she was able to stabilize her nervous system, everything shifted for her. She started speaking up with confidence and clarity. Her marriage transformed. Her husband started reacting in a, a different way uh, because she'd really healed her nervous system. Uh, so it, de it depends. I guess my answer is it depends on the person. <laughs> okay. This was a great answer because I wanted to spend a little bit of time then talking about our nervous system. Yeah. So our nervous system is like a smart thermostat, like a smartphone. It learns, right? So we're growing up, we're a child and uh, we, it, it learns over time to react in a certain way in certain situations. But unfortunately we uh, start 
reacting and getting triggered in certain situations that maybe it would be better if we weren't so triggered. I mean, obviously if our, uh, if we're unsafe, if we're not in safety, it's actually good to have your nervous system triggered so you can take action to remove yourself. But sometimes this is happening even though we're safe. And so we can, it takes dedication and it takes a few months, but you can retrain your nervous system. And the way you do that is you have to use mindfulness to notice that you're you're triggered. And a, a key way to notice you're triggered is you actually will feel the muscles in your abdomen tighten. Uh, cognitively, you will notice yourself go into worried thoughts. If you have past trauma, um, you will often feel when you go into fight or flight um, stress in your chest. And so identifying that you're in fight or flight and then immediately following up with a soothing exercise. So I have several different ones that people try out and find out what is the best one for them to soothe. So it doesn't take a lot of time, but they do need to do it in the moment. And over time, their nervous system will, it will react differently. What are some of your favorite tools then? Mm -hmm. Do you use just in terms of visuals, music, affirmations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so one tool for soothing your nervous system, I call the um, four and five. And what you do is you think of four different aspects of your life that bring you stability in five minutes. So you take five minutes and you go through about a minute or so at a time and uh, think about this different aspect of your life that brings you stability. It might be a relationship. It might be your house. It might be your job. It might be something in nature, the mountains, the sea, uh, you know, I have a client, their love of photography um, is something that really brings them stability. So just taking that time and closing your eyes, thinking about memories of it, maybe more visually, uh, maybe it's more emotional. Uh, so that's one. Another very effective way to soothe your nervous system are affirmations, especially affirmations about safety. I'm safe in my body. I'm safe to experience my emotions. I'm safe to express myself. And, the, and that's why I really want, like to stress the um, idea of uh, making this specific to the person, creating this specific to the person. So that's why the, we, through the work, we find out exactly which affirmations are the ones that are going to speak to them specifically. How do people find you, Sarah? Uh, my website is uh, my name, sarahvallely.com, and that's spelled S as in Sarah, A-R-A-H, V as in Victor, A-L-L-E-L-Y.com. And if you scroll down to the bottom of my homepage, I have a an assessment. It's a 15 question assessment. And if you go and fill that assessment out, it's completely free and you can have a zoom with me completely free or a phone call or over email. And I can uh, tell you what your unique stress type is and uh, specifically what would help you in, in, in your unique situation with your stress. And talk to me just for a minute about your podcast. Oh, yeah. What do you talk about? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I've got a podcast and it's, um, it's based on a lot of research. So we're just constantly talking about, about research and about mindfulness, about how mindfulness is helping. Uh, some of our recent episodes are, uh, our last episode was actually about psychedelics, which was, we had a lot of downloads on that. I think people are interested in that, but what I did is I compared psychedelics and mindfulness as in terms of depression. Uh, how do they compare when treating depression? 
Uh, I've got um, an episode on fight or flight responses that I was talking about and anger. We had a recent episode on anger and relationships, relationships specifically, you know, how can you deescalate anger using mindfulness in a relationship? And um, yeah, so we, we talk about different things that are relevant, hopefully. <laughs> and the aware mind is available uh, wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm. Great. Sure is. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And I can attest for anyone listening. I took, uh, you know, when we were coordinating for you to be on the podcast, I took that assessment. I was really impressed, mm-hmm. really impressed. Thank and you. I encourage everyone to take the assessment and take advantage of the, the complimentary time with you. So thank you, Sarah. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you're interested in media coaching for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook. 12 tips for success on camera. And as always, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.